James chapter 2. Open your Bibles to James chapter 2. For our study of God's Word today, we are going to begin a series that will be this week, and I think we'll finish it up next week. And that series will look at the issues behind what's going crazy in our world right now, the issue of racism and riots and Listen, I, I, full disclosure, I don't like to be a, a pulpit ambulance chaser that just responds to whatever's going on in the news. But there are some things that are so common to all of our experience that it's important to stop and say and remember that God has something to say about what's going on in our world. There is nothing new under the sun. He has already given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And that is the case with what we're seeing with racism and riots protests in our day. We return to James to look at his second chapter. James is always remarkable to me because this is likely the half-brother of our Lord Jesus, who never says he's the half-brother of our Lord Jesus. If I had been the half-brother of our Lord Jesus, I can assure you everyone would have known that. James, in his humility, doesn't even pay any attention to it. But it's it's a very pointed epistle. And we find no surprise that he deals with the subject that our culture is dealing with head-on in chapter 2. The title for today is Pride and Prejudice, but not that pride and prejudice. Let me read this text for us. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you sit over there, stand over there, or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Have you dishonored, but you have dishonored the poor man. It is not the rich who oppress you, is it not the rich who oppress you personally and, and they drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law, yet stumbles in one point, has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. All of our lives will be marked By the first few months of 2020, we will remember it forever. Those of you who are young will tell your kids and grandkids of the first months of this year. In March, we all experienced a national and worldwide phenomenon that has been not been seen in any generation that of the people who are alive today. The whole world was shut down because of a a virus, a pandemic. We were asked to stay at home, and that we did for weeks and months. But just as we began to see the light at the end of that tunnel, a video surfaced of the horrific and unjustified murder of George Floyd. And that event began a chain reaction of protests, and many of those protests escalated into riots. The result of these events has been a needful discussion on everyone's mind about politics and racism. The Bible is full of descriptions of politics, and the reason is that it describes nations and kingdoms and rulers. And if you have nations and kingdoms and rulers, you have politics. 
Yet the Bible says very little, almost nothing about engaging in the politics of this world other than submitting to them, not obeying man, but obeying God if it's pushed to that. Rather, the Spirit of God instructs God's children how to live faithfully as His child in the midst of governments that are unjust and rulers who are wicked. Just think for a moment about the circumstances of the time of the first generations, even Jesus Himself, the first generation of Christians. Only the wealthy had any rights to speak of at all. Only the wealthy. Taxation was exorbitant. Taxation was arbitrary. No one had a vote for anything in the government. Homosexuality was sanctioned by the Roman government. Temple prostitution was accepted and encouraged. In Israel, Roman politics and religious overlording came together in Herod the Great, whose simple edict killed thousands of babies two years younger. As bad as abortion is, this may have been worse ripping toddlers from their mother's arms and executing them on the spot. Add to all that, Caesar demanded that the entire kingdom, which included the nation or the the land of Israel, worship him as God. Just remember that there is nothing new under the sun. And as bad as our government and our world is, it's not as bad as it has been. We could look at the politics in the Old Testament itself and find the lethal environment of King Ahasuerus in Esther, the murderous regime of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel who sentenced our four friends, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to death for obeying God. Just read about the horrific stories of Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel and you will see unjust governments and horrific politics. Then you add the challenge of studying church history. This really, the study of how many have wrongly conflated democracy and political freedom with Christianity as synonyms, and they're not. For a Christian to think biblically in our political world, we must embrace the fact that we will be increasingly contrarian. That means we think contrary to the public opinion. In other words, our values, our views will be opposite of the world's, oftentimes even with political conservatives. How we think about politics and government is a biblical issue more than we might imagine. How we discuss politics, how we discuss government is a biblical issue more than we might imagine. Recent events, repeating over and over on our news cycles, have forced us all to land on many political implications of our faith and implications of political opinions on what we believe and what we believe on those political opinions, and they collide. The leading issue of our day at least in this season, is race and racism. Back to racism for a moment. Let's ask uh, Merriam-Webster about a definition. Go to that dictionary and this is what you read. A belief that race is the primary deterrent, determinant of human traits and capacities and that racial differences produce an inherent superiority of a particular race. What we believe about and how we respond to racism will define your generation, young people, and this generation that we live in in more ways than I think we can imagine. How should we respond? How should a Christian respond to race and racism? It might surprise you, but how you answer that question reveals the heart of the gospel. It exposes more of your theology than you might realize by how you think about, discuss, and respond to race and racism. As I said, Pride and Prejudice, which are at the heart of racism, is far more than a Jane Austen novel. Pride and Prejudice have crept into the church. It's causing divisions in James's day, even revealing that some weren't believers at all, he will say later in his epistle. And at the heart of racism is 
prejudice. Pre-judging. Prejudice. Back to the dictionary. Prejudice is an adverse judgment or opinion formed beforehand without knowledge or examination of the facts. A preconceived preference or idea. It's discriminating. It's prejudging. And it's almost always based on externals, first impressions. The space that James devotes in these first 13 verses of chapter 2 to prejudging, partiality, prejudice, all the same thing, suggests that this was a significant issue among the believers to whom he was writing. But he doesn't exactly let us know all of the implications. Rather, he gives us, a, gives us a specific example from which we extrapolate and find implications. Back to James 1.22, we're to be doers of the word and doing the word that is the perfect law of God in verse 25, chapter 1, verse 25, includes showing compassion to the helpless in verse 27 of chapter 1. So in the passage before us, James is letting his readers know that showing favor to the rich and treating the poor with contempt is a direct contradiction to the demand of God's law and it's the heart of prejudice. Let's follow James's pen, and we'll discover together five problematic properties of prejudice. Five problematic properties of prejudice. That's a lot of P's, and I didn't even try. And there's more to come. Five problematic properties of prejudice. The first is in verse 1. Prejudice is prohibited by God. It's banned. It's, it's against God's law. It's prohibited by God. Verse 1, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Let's break that down. He summarizes the whole section really in this one verse by saying, Christianity and prejudice are utterly incompatible. My brothers, he begins. He'll use that phrase, uh, 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 he uses that phrase to change topics in, in his epistle, but he also uses it to say, hey, I'm in this together with you. We need to make sure that we're thinking in lockstep with each other. You might find it interesting. He refers to Jesus Christ only twice in this letter, in chapter 1, verse 1, and here. He actually brings our commitment to Christ himself into the, the fulcrum of this argument and understanding prejudice. Translators disagree on how to translate the next phrase. I think the best way to look at it, honestly, is to say Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, which is an affirmation of his deity. If you take the most natural reading of the Greek text, do not hold your faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, in a prejudiced way. He could not be more clear. A person who has faith in Jesus Christ should not in any way have prejudice, show favoritism. You want in our, in our uh, vernacular, show, show racism, be a racist. He unmasks the heart of prejudice with an interesting word. He says personal favoritism in the New American Standard. It's a very rare Greek word. Some think the New Testament writers invented it. It literally means receiving the face. It's a strange word. Do not hold faith in the Lord Jesus Christ while receiving the face. What does that mean? It means to make judgments about people based on appearances. How they look. First impressions. By the way, the Greek is in plural as well. Acts of receiving the face. Acts of favoritism. Acts of prejudice, prejudging. This opens up the application of what James is intending in a whole lot bigger implication, application grid than just the example he's going to give us. How do we show favoritism? How do we show prejudice? How do we show partiality in our day? Well, you could go on and on forever. Let me, let me pick out just a few. The way we've described it before is imagine that Prejudice is a, is a tree trunk, a giant walnut tree. 
off this tree shoots many branches and then branches off them and twigs off them. The central trunk is prejudging or prejudice. But that expresses itself, it finds expression in different ways. For example, some people are prejudiced about dress. That's what we're going to see in the example here in James, about how people dress, what they're wearing. You ever made a judgment about somebody based on what they were wearing, even if instinctively? Other people make, make it on general physical appearance. Length of hair, he's wearing a tattoo. They've got so many rings on Perceived level of income? Wow, they look rich. Therefore, A, B, C, D. They don't look like they have any money. Therefore, A, B, C, D. Sexism, that's gender discrimination or gender prejudice. Looking at some people, he's just a man or she's just a woman, ergo, negative response. Xenophobia, that's disliking or being prejudiced against people from other countries. I've had prejudice expressed against me because I keep thinking I've lost it. I keep being told I haven't. I have a bit of a southern draw growing up in Tennessee. And people think that people with a southern accent aren't very smart. Now, that may be the case with me individually, but not everyone in the south is stupid. Are you laughing with me or at me? Ageism, prejudice prejudice against people older than you or prejudice against people younger than you. Boy, you see this in 1 Samuel 17, don't you? Saul's out trying to drum up somebody to go fight Goliath when he should have been the one out fighting Goliath. David comes and says, hey, I'm here. And he was discriminated against, prejudged because he was short and young and handsome. I've never been discriminated against with that third category. Ageism. Personality. Well, he's an extrovert. She's an extrovert. I'm an introvert or or vice versa. And you you prejudge people on that. Intelligence. Democrats, Republicans, independents, and skin color. Race. There is a growing theological debate about whether or not race even exists. And I would lean toward the fact that it's not a quantifiable theological or physical reality outside of melanin. The Bible says we are all part of the human race distinguished from animals. Identifying traits that distinguish us from each other is not as important as the theological trait that unites us which is our sinfulness and consequent condemnation that cry out for a Savior. The point is this. It is way too easy to make judgments about a person's life and character based on external features and observation only or first. We'll come back to that in our next point, and we will come back to that next week. The Old Testament deals with the sin of prejudice or partiality in many places and in many ways. First of all, it tells us that God is not partial. God is impartial. Deuteronomy 10 verse 17, the awesome God who does not show partiality. The awesome God who is not prejudiced because of external observations. Red and yellow, black, and white, they are, say it with me, precious in his sight. That may be the most profound statement of the image of God, the Imago Day that you've ever sung. Also, God's people are to imitate him by being impartial. Exodus, excuse me, Leviticus 19, verse 15, you shall not be partial prejudiced to the poor or defer to the great. That paragraph ends in verse 18 by saying, love your neighbor as yourself. James is going to pick that up in a moment. 
God taught Peter the same lesson in Acts 10, 34, opening his mouth when he saw that God saves Jews and Gentiles. Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. The God who has shown a degree of his favor to the Jews for the entire Old Testament period now is saving all. And he says, God is not just the God of Israel. He's the God of believers. Paul is explicit, Romans 2.11, there is no partiality or prejudice with God. He's not partial to race, gender, preference. He's not prejudiced. Now, I know what someone, someone will say, but didn't he show favor to the Jews? Didn't he elevate the, his favor toward that race? Well, it wasn't, he didn't. He didn't describe it, nor do we see in the Bible that that was a race. That was the descendants of Abraham that was going to give us the Messiah. That was the favor, not just because they were Jewish. He goes over and over in Romans to say, there wasn't nothing special about y'all. It was that God chose you. That's what made you special. He does, however, prejudge and judge in a way that you and I cannot and will not All of his judgments are true and right. Even when he loved Jacob and hated Esau in Romans 9, before they were born or did anything, that was a righteous judgment because he's God. God is not red or yellow or black or white. God is not an American. That might be surprising for some people to hear. God has no American flag in the throne room. Yet all of his judgments are holy and righteous, equitable, right in his character, based on melanin, right? No, wrong. Based on skin color? Absolutely not. James' point in verse 1 is simple. One who holds faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a stack. Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Lord of glory may not in any way, for any reason, be prejudiced. I'm going to make a judgment about your life and character based on externals. Prejudging, being prejudiced, being racist, you name it, any other, other kind of partiality are strictly forbidden to a believer. Which brings us to the explanation and the illustration in our second problematic property of prejudice. Prejudice is produced by externalism. This is the heart of it. It's produced by externalism. Verses 2 and 4. After prohibiting the sin of favoritism, he'll call it sin explicitly in a few verses, James does what any good preacher and teacher does. He, He gives an illustration. The setting is the worship service in the synagogue. Now, in the synagogue, that was the first meeting place for churches. And there was a a natural transition for Jewish believers to just keep meeting in their house of worship, their synagogue. The synagogue, though, I've I've been in several in Israel. They're very very interesting and very simple. They were oblong buildings. They weren't large. In those uh, uh, synagogues were just staircased stone or concrete seats, just like steps. The best seats were up front, usually at the top, looking down at the the speaker. And the best, most respectable people got the best seats. Visitors come into this church. Gary, you'll appreciate this. This is a a passage about usher ministry. (laughs) And I've never seen you all do this. Visitors come in. Two men come in to get seated for worship, both from opposite sides of the tracks. Notice the focus on externals. Prejudice is motivated by a superficial evaluation of others. Verse 2, for if a man comes into your gathering, your ecclesia, your assembly, your, your church, with a gold ring, it's plural, indicating that he's wearing multiple rings, he's from the upper class, And in fine clothes, literally, it's kind of interesting. This tells you an insight into that day. Shiny clothes, reflective clothes. They would sew what we would call sequins into their outer clothing, and they would catch the light, and they were, you know, rhinestone in in their look. 
If a man comes in and he is dressed up, indicating he has a lot of money, and there also comes in meeting the same usher, a guy in the, the um, NASB says dirty clothes, it's literally shabby, worn, tattered, hole infested clothing. He's poor. He looks homeless in our vernacular. So you have this guy in, comes in dressed as nicely as he could, right beside a, get, a guy who is in shabby clothes, likely unbathed, likely stinking. And then here's the problem, verse 3. And you pay special attention. There's our word again. Receive the face. Look with favor, prejudice in a good way to the one who's wearing the fine clothes, and you say, you, sit here in a good place. Best seat in the house. And you say to the poor man, look at this series. First, stand over there. You don't even get a seat. We don't want you sitting by someone. And if you do, sit by my feet. Down by my footstool. By the way, these stone structures were all one height. It was very common for them to be a little long and you brought a, a cushion to put your feet on. You can sit down by my feet. Situation is clear. The rich man is treated with favor. The poor man is treated with contempt based on how they look. A shallow external evaluation. But verse 4 goes deeper into the heart. Prejudice is rooted in an inflated evaluation of yourself. Have you not, verse 4, made distinctions, prejudice judgments among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? The emphasis on judges and judgment is interesting. It comes up in verses 12 and 13. It comes back in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. When we judge others, we have elevated ourselves to God's position. Making discriminating, prejudiced distinctions is nothing other than attempting to dethrone God and place ourselves on His throne. And it all comes down from an inflated view of self. How do we know that? Look at that last phrase. The core is you become judges with evil motives. What? This tells us a lot. What motives could he be talking about? Think about this. You're, we can put it in our vernacular. You see a guy who comes in who's very wealthy, driving in the, the, the nicest car, wearing the best, best jewelry, the best, best uh, uh, clothes. And you see a guy who's dressed like he's homeless, likely homeless, not attractive, needing bathing, What motives could you have? The rich man could possibly bring you benefit. The poor man offers you nothing. Judging from the outside. Ever heard the phrase, who died and made you king? When you're prejudiced, you are saying that God died and you are the king. Judging the heart from the external. Dismissing and diminishing that they are made in the image of God just by looking at how they're poorly dressed. Perhaps you remember the story of God's choosing David as Israel's king. Samuel comes to anoint the new king. He's told to go to Jesse's house. An amazing drama unfolds and teaches us much about externalism. Just listen to this. This is 1 Samuel 16. Just listen. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Saul's been rejected. They need a new king. Samuel was the, the prophet to do the anointing. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. Pretty clear, right? Go to Jesse's house. One of his sons is going to be the king. Pretty simple assignment. 
But Samuel said, how can I go? When, when Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you. Say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. He gave him a legitimate way to be obedient. If you invite, you shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice. I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I will designate for you. Pretty straightforward. So Samuel did what the Lord said, came to Bethlehem, and the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, do you come in peace? Is he going to come and pronounce a judgment? He said, in peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to sacrifice. He also consecrated, invited Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Remember, a sacrifice was always followed by a feast. You ate the animal that you sacrificed. This was going to be a, a wonderful God-ordained party. When they entered the house, when he entered, they entered rather, he looked at Eliab, Jesse's son, and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. This is him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, for God sees. Not as a man sees. What do you mean, Lord? Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So then Jesse called Abinadab and made a, him pass before Samuel, and he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Next, Jesse did uh, Shammah pass by. The Lord has not chosen this one either. Then Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. He went through all the boys, all the sons, no king. And Samuel said to Jesse, are these all your children? And he said, well, there remains the youngest. Behold, he's out tending sheep. He's out doing yard work. Samuel said to Jesse, send him to me, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. This is David. Now he was ruddy, which literally means red-haired. He had red hair with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him. This is he. Jesse knew what was up. He knew what Samuel was doing. And he didn't consider David even a nominee And he was the man. Not based on anything external. That's the kind of God we serve. We are to imitate our God, which means we look to heart and character and internal value from the Imago Dei. This kind of spiritually illogical thinking and acting comes from foolishness which brings us to our third problematic property of prejudice, is provoked by foolishness. Stimulated, provoked by foolishness. Why is such discrimination and prejudice foolish? Well, look at verse 5. It ignores the nature of salvation. Listen, my beloved brethren. Did God not choose the poor? Stop right there. Look at this contrast. Rich man, poor man, better seat, worse seat. Discussion of salvation. Did God not choose the poor, the poor of this world, to be rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? I think there's a double entendre going on here. This was obviously, in the context, someone who would have been physically poor. But it's also loaded with theological significance. Jesus talks about being poor in spirit, meaning being, understanding our spiritual bankruptcy before God and needing salvation. Those are the people that God saves, according to Matthew 5. First Corinthians 1, 26 to 29 is not very flattering to us in our condition as men and women who are saved by God. Paul says, consider your calling, consider your salvation, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh. I didn't choose the smartest ones. Not many mighty. I didn't choose the most powerful in society. 
Not many noble. I didn't choose all the kings and the governors. But God has chosen (laughs) the foolish things of the world. You understand that that's you and me. We are the foolish things of the world. To shame the wise, those who think they're all-knowing. God has chosen the weak things of the world. You understand that too is you and me. To shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, we're based and despised. God has chosen the things that are not. We are nobodies, that he might nullify the things that are, the somebodies, that no man should boast before God. That's important. James says, God chose the poor of this world. Paul says he chose the, the most disenfranchised, the most unattractive of this world, so that he might show himself great by saving those kind of people. Now, does that mean he doesn't save the, the, the wealthy or the noble or the kings or the princess? It doesn't mean that at all. It does mean that's not why he saves them. The New Testament suggests that God takes special delight to shower his grace on those whom the world has discarded and on those who recognize their own spiritual bankruptcy and inadequacy. And James calls on the church to have a similar, similar ethic of special concern for the poor. If God looks with favor toward the poor, so should you. By the way, this is not reverse discrimination where you, the rich come in and you say, you can sit in the worst seat and you need to park in the, in the uh, uh, upper parking lot as far away as you can. That's not what it's saying at all. Salvation does not discriminate. That's his point. Neither should we. Also, talking about how foolish it is, it defies common sense. Verse 6, you've dishonored the poor man, but you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you personally and drag you into court? We find out something about these rich people. There were more poor people than rich people in this time. This was the aristocracy who were the few who had money. And they would take the poor to court and always win, taking advantage of them financially, taking what they had, owning them as slaves. In other words, they were being persecuted by this class of rich people, so why in the world would you show them favor? It defies logic, James says. It makes sense, though. It's easy to answer. They were showing the rich favor because the rich could either stop persecuting them if they were kind to them or they might get something from them. It betrays loyalty to Christ in verse 7. Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Most of the rich actually thought that Christianity was the religion of the poor and because of that they would blaspheme the fair name of of these Christians, some of whom were even accused of being cannibals because we celebrated the Lord's table, honoring his body and his blood. These were not just rich people. They were people who disdained the name of Christ, and James calls on our allegiance and our loyalty to Christ not to let his bride, the church, flirt with the enemy. It's provoked by foolishness. It's just foolish to do that. Fourth, prejudice is permeated with guilt. Verses 8 through 11. It's a guilty practice, prejudice is. Why? Because it's an avoidable sin. Look at verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal, literally the sovereign law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, then you are doing well. He quotes Leviticus Chapter 19, verse 18 again. That's the second commandment, most important commandment according to Jesus. It's the golden rule, the royal law, the supreme governing law of relationships. It's the law of the king. The point is clear. If you would obey the golden rule, you would not discriminate. You would not be prejudiced. You would treat others as if you were being treated in the same way. Can I just give us a stinging footnote for a minute? James is talking specifically and first and foremost about this kind of prejudice happening in the synagogue, in the church. 
Yes, we should not be, no, we should not be racist in the culture, but do we exercise prejudice in the church? Favor to the rich, the attractive, the desirable, disfavor to the poor, the people who society thinks are deplorable. Remember, Jesus said the greatest commandment in Matthew 22 is to love the Lord your God, and the second is to love your neighbor as yourself, quoting Leviticus 19.18. Look at verse 9. It's a law-breaking sin. For it says, if really since, for since you have shown or you show prejudice, partiality, you are committing sin. Prejudice is not just a preference, it's a sin. And are convicted by the law as transgressors. Then this principle in verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. James cuts through all the speculation and calls discrimination and prejudice what it really is, sin. And as such, it makes us guilty of the entire Old Testament law. All of God's expectations we become guilty of if we are racist, prejudiced. Then he gives almost a ridiculous, exaggerative, almost cartoon-like example in verse 11. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Got it. Ten commandments. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. What is that? He's saying, don't pat yourself on the back for things that you do right when you do other things wrong because if you do anything wrong, you're guilty of the whole thing. Violating one part of the law brings the guilt of the whole, including being prejudiced. Which leads to the fifth problem. Prejudice is penalized in judgment. It's penalized in judgment. Notice the threat of judgment, which would call you and me to obedience in verse 12. So speak and so act. Remember that, speak. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. This is the second time in the book of James he speaks of the law of liberty. This is the gospel. This is the good news that gives us liberty. We are free from all the burden of the civil and ceremonial, uh, the ceremonial law that requires sacrifice after sacrifice. We're free from that. We're free in Christ. It's the gospel that gives us liberty, but it is not distinct from the Old Testament law. It is a fulfillment of the Old Testament law. The threat of judgment should always be a motivation for obedience. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is this. Fear God, keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. Because, for God will bring, think of this, God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. But notice the two verbs, the two areas of obedience. So speak and so act. Speaking and acting. We understand the acting. He just gave us this illustration. What about speaking? What about speaking? You, you know that James spends almost the same amount of time and space as he does on prejudice on the tongue in chapter 3, right? James 3, 8. No one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless Our Lord and Father, with it we curse men who have been made in the image, the likeness of God. My, from the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. Brothers, these things ought not to be this way. Listen, when we prejudge, when we're prejudiced, we are making assessments on an image bearer of the Almighty. What more to say next week about what does black lives matter mean? What does all lives matter mean? You know what this means? It's more specific. Each life 
matters to God because they are image bearers of God. He doesn't distinguish, by the way, in chapter 3, whether you're speaking of someone who's guilty or innocent, good or bad, nice or unkind. He says, when you speak about another image bearer of God, you have sinned and cursed them with your tongue. Again, we're going to come back to this next week, but what does it mean to be an image bearer of God? Genesis 2, we'll make man in our image. It means we have consciences. It's distinguishing mostly how we're distinct from the animal kingdom. We have consciences. We bear guilt. We have language. We have an internal compass that points us to the reality of God's existence, Romans 1 tells us. We are uniquely male and female We have immortal souls. We are creative and recognize beauty, those aesthetics we've talked about. Only humans understand beauty. And we owe God acknowledgement and adoration and worship. So speak and so act as not to be prejudiced against an image bearer of God. And the threat of such judgment from God calls for mercy. Verse 13, hear this in context. Judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Zechariah chapter 7, verse 9, thus says the Lord of hosts, dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother. Do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. You remember Jesus illustrated the necessity of mercy in Matthew 18, verses 21 to 25. There's a man thrown in prison for owing a debt he could never pay. Think of millions and millions and millions of dollars he would spend the rest of his life in jail. That debt is paid off. He goes free and then grabs a man's neck to strangle him for something on the order of 20 bucks. Judgment will be merciless to those who show no mercy. In the context of prejudice, how can we ever prejudge anyone for anything when we've been forgiven for so much? So I'm driving on the freeway this week, studying this passage. The guy cut me off pretty good. Really bad, let's just say it that way, on the freeway. He obviously didn't see me. He almost owned a Honda Pilot, um, my Honda Pilot. Swerved in front of me. And my first thought accompanied by this passage was such a collision. My first thought was, what? You can imagine. And then I thought, I don't think the Holy Spirit speaks to you, but I think the Holy Spirit speaks to you. Do you know what I mean? Not verbally, but I, I just thought, just, just forgive him. Now, I know that didn't come from Satan, that thought. I'm pretty sure it didn't come from me. Just forgive him. Why? Do you know how much we have been forgiven for? I have been forgiven for, and I'm going to be bitter at this guy for accidentally cutting me off? It's embarrassing. And there's the other side of discrimination which is, and prejudice, which is trying to gain someone's favor for the benefit they can, get, they can give you. We need to adjust our reference point. And it's counterintuitive. When I was... Taking driver's ed uh, in high school, I, I remember the, one of the lessons we had was on dealing with your, um, your, your passenger side mirror. And so we had to, you had to sit in the car and we look out and he said, the most instinctive thing to do is to position that mirror so that you can see your car because it makes you really secure. He says, that violates the whole point of a side mirror. You go where you can see the car and then you kick it out another quarter inch so you can see your blind spot. (laughs) Do you understand the blind spots that you and I have for prejudice? Do, do, Do you realize, will you recognize how prejudiced you are and about what you're prejudiced? 
Next week we'll look at, He has told you, old man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, not to fix justice in the world. You in your world do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly with your God. And next week we will dive into the implications of that passage. But real quick, just can I give you three simple takeaways? Three simple walkaways. First, recognize the ways that you prejudge others. I'm assuming that you do and that I do. Whether somebody's clothing or their age or their gender or how they're dressed or, or whether they have markings on their body or an earring in their in their ear or their nose or their hair is a different color or their height or their accent. We all have prejudices. Be honest with yourself and recognize that God looks at the heart and so should you. Secondly, remember God's pre-judgment, that's not prejudice, pre-judgment of you, but how he loved you through the gospel anyway. We have nothing. We have no rocks to throw at anyone because of the way that God has saved us. And then secondly, and we will drill down more on these next little thoughts next week. Number two, adopt God's two primary pre-assessments about all people. Adopt God's two primary pre-assessments about all people. And it's not about being red and yellow, black and white. What are his two pre-assessments? Every person is made in the image of God, therefore have intrinsic value to God and should have value to us no matter how they treat us. And the other side of the coin is every person is a sinner in need of a Savior. It's the... It's the greatest value positively and the worst assessment negatively. Value because we bear the image of God, condemned because we are sinners, and God solves that by sending his son to die for the sins of those who believe, raised him from the dead and says, you can come to me and find peace and forgiveness and mercy and solace and purpose. And if you've not done that, please don't leave the building without talking to someone. I'd love to chat with you about what that would mean. Next week, we're going to be more macro and look at, at more of a theological filter to view what's going on in our world. It's going to be topical. Every time I announce that, I think of Walt Kaiser who said, every preacher should preach one topical sermon every year after which he should immediately repent well (laughs) we'll get back to mark in a few weeks but we do need to systematize some stuff topical preaching is just systematic theology in a public way so that's what we'll do next week we'll stitch that to james 2 let me pray